This morning we want to uh, actually let you know about a couple things too before we um, continue. One is that we have a uh, box back there in the back that is full of our directories. For those who may not have picked one up yet, the new church directories are there uh, on the back table. You can just grab one and, and go at it. And If you have grabbed yours um, already, that's fine, but for those who haven't, that's where you can pick them up now. Um, the second thing we wanted to highlight this morning before we continue is that today is our pastor's birthday. <laughs> Matt, you're 49 now? What, what's, the, what's the age? 53. 53 is his age. Um, I don't know. Uh, I guess, would it be appropriate to sing happy birthday to him? Or? Okay, that's what I thought. Uh, I guess I'll start us even though I'm a bad singer. But. Here we go. Let's, let's sing to our pastor. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Matt. Happy birthday to you. All right. Matt chose to celebrate his birthday by ditching his job and giving it to me today. <laughs> So, I uh, guess he's the boss, we just go with it. Um, we, uh, I'm, I'm glad to be here this morning, it's, it's fun to be up and do this, actually. So, um, I was uh, thinking today, or today and this week about um, cartoons. It's a favorite subject of mine, I'm sure you can agree, and, and many of you feel the same way. You know, they just don't make cartoons the way they used to, do they? They just don't. Um, you know, one of my favorites that I always enjoyed growing up was Scooby-Doo. Um, you guys, many of you out there know Scooby-Doo. Even the young kids today know him because they made a movie, a couple movies about him that, wow, not, not good. But the, the old Scooby-Doo cartoon was a classic. Um, one of my favorite things, you know, about Scooby-Doo um, was, you know, as a kid, there's some hilarious stuff to it. Um, you know, there's just the, the whole Scooby's voice and, and Shaggy, they're, they're just a great team. Um, you know, and, and of course there's the aspect of there's a mystery and there's these scary monsters every week and so forth. But, you know, what really comes in each week is, is the, the humor. And what I liked about the show was that no matter how scary the monsters were, how twisted the plot seemed, no matter how many Harlem Globetrotters showed up to help <laughs> Scooby-Doo, um, you could relax. I remember just feeling relaxed as a kid because you knew that at the end, the bad guy was going to get exposed, right? Always, always happened. I mean, was there an episode where it didn't? I don't think, if there was, let me know because I'd be, I'd be you know, curious to know that. But you know, the bad guy was always exposed and it was the classic, you know, they'd, they'd grab some guy and it was the guy you'd seen, you know, they'd grab the monster and, and he'd rip the mask off, you know, and, and we'd say, it's not a monster, it's... Mr. Johnson, right? And, and, and Mr. Johnson, you know, would, would always say that classic line. What's the classic, uh, you know? It's right. I would have gotten away with it if it weren't for those pesky kids, right? You know, and, and there was always that sense of, yay, we exposed the monster. You know, we unmasked the bad guy. We always, uh, we always like to, to see things exposed. We like to see the truth brought to light, Right? We, we always, you know, we, we look for and watch and admire the hard-hitting news reporter who will, who will um, you know, ask the tough questions that really get 
to the bottom of it and, you know, ask the things that will really bring the truth out. We, uh, you know, we tend to, as a society, just love getting the truth. Um, that's just something built into us. We have TV shows dedicated to nothing other than exposing the dirt on our celebrities, right? We have magazines and TV shows. that That's a whole half hour just devoted to us knowing what they're really like, what what's really going on. We have people called the paparazzi who run around and make, sadly, six-figure salaries um, so that they can show us that, hey, Britney Spears occasionally looks fat, or Tom Cruise uh, had bad hair one day, or uh, Nicole Kidman had a pimple, right? I mean, we, we want to know these things. We want those things exposed. I guess that makes us as, you know, feel better that we know those celebrities are, are human after all or something. I don't know. Um, but we value exposure. We, we value unmasking, right, as a society. We just value that. Um, it's funny, though, because it's not so great as people. It's not so great when the exposure and the light of exposure gets turned on us. Right? When, when we are the one under the, under the magnifying glass, and we're the one under the scope. Um, many of you can relate to the exposure, the unmasking that happens when you look in the mirror. Right? There are certain mirrors in your house. Maybe some of you can relate to this. You just avoid. Because, boy, you just don't look good in that one. Right? My, my, my wife, my wife and, and other women that I know really are, are you know, talk about this idea that there are certain mirrors they just run by um, because they... They don't want to see, they don't look good. You know, me, the mirror's always friendly, but uh, no, it's, um, so not true. So not true. It's getting worse every day. I don't understand. You know, they say that by 40, you, you, you have the face you deserve. I don't know what that means, but I'm starting to get worried about that. Um, anyways, my, my mom, when growing up, I remember she had this mirror that she would put her makeup on. It was this kind of round mirror. And I remember, you know, whenever I would look in it, it was like, Hello, right? I mean, it was just this magnifying mirror. And, you know, Mandy, to this day, when we go to our, our home back in Chicago, she goes, I hate that mirror. I never, she, every time I look in that mirror, I get so mad because it's just this mirror that blows her up, blows up the face and exposes all your little imperfections, I guess. Um, but it's not just the physical, that, you know, exposure that we hate. Um, you know, it's, it's other as well. I, I heard a story about a pig farmer who um, slaughtered a pig and uh, hung it up to be butchered in his, in his farm, in his shed. And overnight it was taken. Farmer didn't say anything though, just kind of waited. And a couple months later, a farmer down the road came up to him and said, hey, farmer uh, Josh, did, did, did you ever find out who stole your pig? And he said, nope, not till now. <laughs> right? The exposure of, of the deeper stuff in us is not too fun to have brought to, brought to light either. Um, I don't necessarily have any statistical proof of this, but my guess would be that a large percentage of people, I, would, I, don't, I don't want to put a number on it, but I've I got to think a large percentage of people walk around this world today walking around in the fear that they're going to be exposed. Walking around in the, in the fear that, that their real self is going to be brought to life. That some sort of a Scooby-Doo mystery machine is going to pull up and rip off the mask and expose them for who they really are. Sadly, I, I don't know if I would say this is even in the church or maybe even especially in the church. I think we tend to see this in Christians. We fear that, that someone's going to come up and rip off our mask. See? He wasn't a 
devoted to his family godly Sunday school teacher. He's a man who struggles with pornography and lives a double life at home. See, she's not a devoted mother of three and, and loving wife. She's a woman who's got serious anger problems, serious control issues. We fear this as a church. I think we fear this as people that, that somehow this is going to be us, that, that that exposure is just right around the corner. It's just right there for us. Ironically, I think what's amazing about this is while this, is, this exposure is, is naturally a fear for us, something I think that we all would say is pretty natural to fear, the irony is that it may be just what we need. It may be just exactly what is needed for us. And I'm not just talking necessarily about exposure to each other, but especially when it comes to being exposed, being unmasked before our Lord, before our God. We're going to see that in our passage today in the Bible. I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to see an exposure of a, in a story here. A story, it's essentially a story, in, in, as I see it this morning, four parts. Um, the first part that we see this morning is a holy God revealed. Uh, in chapter 6, verse 1, it says this. It says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. What's interesting about this is Isaiah doesn't give any indication that he went seeking for, for this vision, that he went looking for this. It just was something that seems to have been kind of thrust upon him. Um, the timeliness of it, the fact that it was in the year of King Uzziah's death is, is interesting, and, and we don't necessarily have a ton of time to go into who Uzziah was and all this, but needless to say, what this timing demonstrates is that it was a time that was the, kind of the beginning of the end kind of the beginning of a big downfall, beginning to a time when Israel would never really come back to where they were. Um, and, and, and God is essentially making a statement even in the time that, that he reveals himself to Isaiah. It's a time when he says, Isaiah, yeah, the, 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 the king is dead or will soon be dead. The throne is, is, is empty on earth in Israel. But I'm on my throne, right? I am on the throne. And so the Holy God reveals himself to Isaiah. And, and, of course, there's a couple of aspects to this. Seated on a throne, right? The idea that, that he demonstrates to Isaiah, I am, I am very much on my throne in control. No matter what goes on, no matter what occurs in the next years of your life, Isaiah, or in the life of Israel, I am on the throne. I'm not checking out. I'm not on a vacation. I'm on the throne, right? The, the fact that Isaiah sees the Lord lofty and exalted, right? That he just sees him blown up. He's big. He's a, he's a gigantic God. Not a small God, a God who, who's in the, you know, he can put in his pocket, but a God who's lofty, exalted, right? And he sees a God whose train of his, the train of his robe fills the temple. I don't know exactly a way to describe this, or, you know, I've, I've, as I read this, I wasn't sure exactly what, you know, this would have looked like, but it essentially is just this idea of the presence filling where Isaiah was, that, there, that Isaiah couldn't escape. It was almost as if the, the robe was going to cover him up if he didn't run. 
right? That the, the, the train of his robe just filled the temple. You read in verse 2, it says, Seraphim, in Isaiah's vision, stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. I uh, did some, a lot of digging into this. Uh, the the, the thing that, that kind of got repeated over and over is, basically, we don't know a lot about who these seraphim were. Um, there's very few references to, to seraphim here in the, in the scriptures at all. Um, this is one of the key ones. Um, and we don't really know much about them. Obviously, there's some sort of angelic beings. The commentators, in terms of why they had two covering their face, two covering their feet, I got nothing. No, I didn't get nothing, but I got very little that, that really explained this. Guys, it was, it was as if they didn't really know and just didn't really care. <laughs> no, not, not that last part, but they didn't really have an explanation. Um, they didn't really seem to really you know, have a, an explanation. Perhaps they, they, they you know, would remark it, it speaks to some sort of an idea of just the humility before a holy God, um, the idea of, of covering the feet, covering you know, that that was somehow a, a connotation of service to him. Um, but the bottom line is these seraphim were just here, and they were doing this. And, and, of course, the next verse tells us their main job of these seraphim, which was, And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's funny, in my house we joke about, and my parents kind of come from the old school worship style of, you know, hymns, very traditional, very, you know, it's all about meat and meaty hymns and hymns that take you 15 minutes to sing because there's so many verses, right? And they always kind of make fun of, the, you know, the, the modern worship with the, what they call the 7-Eleven songs, seven words repeated 11 times, right? And they, they joke about that and they kind of, they <laughs> get an amen somewhere? I get, they, they, they get into this. And my parents and I get into it because, you know, they accuse us of being, you know, empty-minded and I accuse them of being you know, turning worship into a funeral dirge and all this kind of stuff. We go back and forth. But basically, you know, one of the things that my dad and I were laughing about is, you know, you wonder if God ever just, was like, oh, you know what, I've heard that enough, okay? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. You know, it's like these guys are just singing this and, and repeating it over and over again. And the, and the question would be, why? What's the point? What would cause this scene, the, the, this statement being said, called out to one another like this? What's interesting, uh, one thing that, that the Bible you know, is interesting about is the way in which things are emphasized. One of the ways in which things in the biblical language are emphasized is through repetition. When things are repeated, there's an important thing going on there. Um, we see this uh, occasionally in Scripture when, when someone will say something twice. Jesus saying, truly, truly, I say to you. When he says that double truly, it's, it's kind of like he's saying, hello, this is important. Right? This is significant. When things are repeated twice, there's, there's an emphasis there. Uh, a, a humorous example of this is in Genesis 14, um, where some chariots go, uh, there's some chariots of some kings that go booking into what they call, and, and mo most Bibles read, the tar pits. Right? In the literal translation, the literal Hebrew, it's the pits, pits. The pit, pits. And, and translators don't know what to do with it, so they always put tar pits or the, you know, this kind of pit or this kind of pit. They don't, they don't, obviously, they don't want to write pit pit. People would be like, what's wrong with my Bible? There's a typo, right? But that's literally what it says, is pit pit. And, of course, the idea is this was for emphasis. According to the writer of that time, this was a pit 
of pits, right? This was, I mean, you, there's pits and then there's a pit pit, right? <laughs> and a pit pit is the pittiest pit you've ever seen pitted? I don't know. The point is, that was, they were, the, the writer was emphasizing they, these guys had trucked and fallen into a bad pit, right? It was, it was not your ordinary pit. Emphasis, right? The emphasis of things repeated. Very seldom do we see things repeated in the Bible twice. Even more seldom do we see things repeated like this three times in a row. Very seldom. We see it in in Revelation. There's an eagle flying and he says, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Right? Three times woe, right? You're in trouble. Okay? The fact of the matter is, there is only, as I, I, I want to just read you this. This is from R.C. Sproul. He says, Only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to this third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned, an attribute of God mentioned three times in, in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, 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 that the whole earth is full of his glory. Point being made, that God is holy. Now, why is that significant? What, I guess maybe a question to break down at this point is, do we even understand holiness? If it's so emphasized, do, we, do you think maybe we ought to pay attention to what is holiness? What is it after all? We use it all the time in church, but what is it? My studies kind of noticed that, that there's a couple of different understandings or, or usages or ways of kind of getting our hands around holy, the word holy, the, the idea of holiness. Um, the first is this idea, God in being holy He's, he's essentially rooted in, it's rooted in this idea that he is, we're, we're unable to define him. Holiness equals uniqueness, right? It, it resembles an inability to, to say he's in a class by himself. There is nothing we can say that's like him. He, the holiness is this idea of his incomparableness, Right? His uniqueness. We see verses like this in the Bible that, that kind of reference this. To whom will you liken me that I should be his equal, says the Holy One. Right? Or in 1 Samuel 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides thee, nor is there any rock like our God. Holiness equals just extreme, extreme uniqueness. An inability to, 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 to see anything like him. Never has been, never will be, right? There's also this aspect of holiness in which it's about God's absolute moral perfection, right? That's kind of another aspect of holiness, that that he is completely and fully and absolutely morally perfect in everything he does. So when we talk about his grace, it's a holy grace. When we talk about his justice, it's a holy justice. This is big. This is, a, this is a key thing. That The fact that it's repeated like this is very important. It, it speaks to the fact that, hello, holiness of God, something important. 
something, something key. Now, I think a key question to ask is, do you think the average churchgoer makes much of this? How many, how many people in the church really, if you were to ask them what is God like, would speak to holiness in one of the first five things that is said? <laughs> I went and kind of did a little bit of looking this week on what, you know, Christian books, uh, bookstores and things like that, the, the, the bestseller list. Right? I looked at the top 50 best-selling Christian books right now, as of like last week. Guess how many of them had holiness pretty much in there at all? Anything to do with the title or anything to do with, with the subject? I found one that kind of got there. There was eight nonfiction Christian books. Right? There was plenty about uh, you know, speaking about uh, you know, our, our needs and, and this kind of thing and... and Understanding a woman and, and you know a purpose-driven life and, and uh, God is closer than you think. Those are and those are great books and I'm and I'm not at all trying to, to bag on those authors or bag on that idea and, and so forth. What's that? You want me to bag on? No, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. But I guess my what I what I really come, came away with is is where does holiness rank on the church's scale of importance? Where does the holiness of God rank? in terms of our understanding and our desire to even understand it or to even be, have it be on our radar screen. Isaiah shows us to heaven, to the angels, to the Lord himself, his holiness is perhaps the most important aspect that he wants understood, that he wants communicated. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Part two of this Passage, well, actually, in verse 4, we see, after these guys speak, the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, and the temple's filling with smoke. You got this aspect of, of just the, the might and the awe and the, and the reverence and the, the holiness of this situation is just causing the, the, the surroundings to just quake and to tremble. And there's smoke, and there's fire, and there's just this sense of, wow, right? I mean, this is, this is a woe moment for Isaiah. Part two of this kind of scenario is, is the man of God responding. The man Isaiah responding to what he has just seen, what has been shown him. Uh, verse five says this, Then I said, this is Isaiah, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, my Bible says. Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Interesting kind of things coming out here right at the beginning. Woe is me. It's the first words out of his mouth. Isaiah was a prophet. This is kind of essentially a lot of uh, theologians think that the beginning of, of his prophet days, this, this scene we're seeing. But either way, he had prophet in his blood. He knew what it was about. He knew what prophets did. He knew what they were called to do. He knew what prophets spoke like. Woe is me. The, the word woe is, is something we don't use a lot today when, when uh, I'm talking to my high school guys about their football game and how it might be tough this week. I don't say, woe is you. Linfield is a good team, right? I don't speak in those terms. We just don't use this word nowadays, right? But in these days, woe was, was the, that was the, the, the key word of the prophet, right? There was essentially two key words. If, if he was pronouncing, you know, good things ahead for people, he said, blessed. You know, blessed are you. Blessed is this nation. Blessed, that was kind of a thing. Jesus would say that, right? Blessed is the, is the pure in heart. Blessed are the, the peacemakers. That was a pronouncement of, of good tidings to come. But when a prophet 
came to town and said, woe is you, or woe is this town, that was trouble, right? And interestingly enough, in this, inst- in this instance, Isaiah is woeing himself. Essentially, he's saying, I am the one who is doomed now. It is me who is about to fall under judgment. It is me who is, who is about to become toast, right? Become, become under God's wrath. Woe is me, right? The second line, second thing out of his mouth is, for I am ruined. I don't know, does anyone have a translation that says anything other than ruined? I am undone, right? What version is that? King Jimmy, right? Yeah, King James. That's the King James version has, has kind of carried that through. I like that word. I named the, t- the sermon title today after that word. I like that, that phrase, I am undone. Because I think it, it kind of speaks to something a little bit more graphic. It's, it kind of gives a, a better picture of what Isaiah was feeling. When he says, I am undone. Why was he undone? First of all, let's ask that. The, the, the fact that he was undone comes from the fact that he recognized I'm a man of unclean lips, right? And I live among a people of unclean lips. What, is, what does this speak to? It speaks to the fact that he immediately recognized his guilt, his sin, right? And he's not just speaking of his lips as being sinful. It's, it's kind of this idea that's brought forth in the Bible a lot of, of our lips essentially showing what's in our heart, right? It's from, from our lips that we show what is inside. And, and the lips are kind of a focal point, a, a billboard, if you will, to what's really going on. And Isaiah recognizes, man, I am unclean. I am, I am fully, fully steeped in sin. And he sees this, number two, because of the next line, for my eyes have seen the King. I've seen the Lord. Right? When Isaiah saw the holiness of God, saw that picture, that vision, and saw perfection, Immediately, he was dragged down into this idea of, I'm toast, I'm ruined, I am, I am utterly sinful. I love this quote from R.C. Sproul. It says, if ever there was a man of integrity, it was Isaiah. He was considered by his contemporaries as the most righteous man in the nation. He was respected as a paragon of virtue. Then he caught one sudden glimpse of a holy God. In that single moment, all of his self-esteem was shattered. In a brief second, he was exposed made naked beneath the, ga- beneath the gaze of the absolute standard of holiness. As long as Isaiah could compare himself to other mortals, he was able to sustain a lofty opinion of his own character. But the instant he measured himself by the ultimate standard, he was destroyed. Morally and spiritually annihilated. He was undone. He came apart. I like, I guess the, 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 the images that I like in this too would be, anyone out there like watching buildings get brought down, get to see that, the, just the building, right? That's Isaiah here. Inside, spiritually, that's what he's feeling. Just complete annihilation. Or you picture a sweater, pulling it by the thread until there's nothing left, and it's just a pile of thread on the ground. He's undone, right? He's completely disintegrated as a man. He recognizes his stance before perfection, before holiness, and it just blows him down. I think the great part, of course, is that in part three of this, 
we see a God who says, okay, <laughs> you got it. And a God who doesn't leave him in that state. We see a, go, a holy God who restores, right? Look at verse 6. Then, the, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. This holy God, a God who is completely unique, incomparable, perfect, is also a God who comes down and restores the one who's been broken, his servant whom he loves, right? He doesn't want him wallowing forever. And so he restores him. He brings this down. Now, there's question as to, as to what this signifies, you know, if, if this meant, you know, just a partial forgiveness or what. The idea is, in this moment, either way, Isaiah felt and knew that, that he could now stand again before this God, that, that, that he, could, he could stand in his presence and, and be forgiven and, and be in a, in a spirit of, of acceptance. And that was huge for Isaiah. And, and the great part is we see, the, the final part is, is we see the holy God after this now send. Now send. Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord. Isaiah is saying this. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I. Here am I. Send me. I think that, you know, I don't, I don't know, because we don't really know from, from the pages of the scripture here, but my guess would be that this wasn't a, here am I. Uh, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm over here. My, my guess is this was a, here am I, send me! Right? That this was just a, an enthusiastic response from Isaiah. He heard the question, and, and it took a half of a second for him to, to jump out of, his, out of his sandals and say, Send me, Lord, send me. Here am I. The question, of course, would be, what brought such enthusiasm? Well, verses 1 to 7, right? What he had experienced, what he had seen, the God whom he had witnessed, caused him to, to have no fear, no doubt, no question about what task might be ahead of him or, or to weigh whether it was going to be costly or dangerous. He didn't care, right? He saw that God and said, I want that. I want to be a part of that. Whatever, send me, right? Now, the amazing part is, of course, we know what God called Isaiah to. It was a tough life, right? It was a tough life. His ministry was, was, was hard. He went through and, and saw so much danger, so much trouble in times. He saw some great things, too. He saw God do some amazing works, but he also saw a lot of, of, of pain, and a lot of people turning a deaf ear, and a lot of people turning away from the Lord. A very discouraging ministry in, in a lot of senses. But my guess would be, even in those times later on in Isaiah's life, he was able to look back and remember what he had seen on this day, and it gave him strength, and it gave him encouragement, and it allowed him to, to, to push on. That would be my guess, is that, is that, that this vision probably sustained Isaiah through the rest of his ministry. This vision of a holy, holy, holy God. And I, I think it's great because we see a common pattern here of God breaking a servant before he sends him out. We see this time and time again in Scripture, right? God breaking someone so that, that they will be more effective in serving him correctly. Now, in the time that we have left, which is not much, I guess I just want to, want to ask, where do we go with this? Where do we go with this idea of a, 
of a holy God revealed in a vision to Isaiah. I was kind of thinking about this Friday night as I was at a carnival thing with my wife and daughter, a Halloween thing, and you know, I was walking around looking at happy people in Temecula enjoying themselves, and I thought, how does the holiness of God apply to a world of carpools and bills, soccer games and soccer moms, all these sorts of common everyday things? How does how the holiness of God meet with that? What bearing does it have for us? And I guess my response would be, if, if this world is only a, a world of soccer games and soccer moms and bills and carpools, then maybe not much. But clearly, as we know from Scripture, that's not what this world is solely built on. And that's not what we were meant to be about. And I believe that if there's an application to take from this, for this morning, my application that I would ask you to, to consider this morning is, is God's holiness something that you have a passion about? Is God's holiness, his renown, is, his, is his, the picture you have of him, of being holy, is that something that, that you have a passion or an interest in? Is that something that, that you esteem, consider to be an important matter? If the Bible emphasizes this aspect of God more than any other and, and truly emphasizes it so strongly like it does with the threefold holy. Perhaps it's something we ought to be passionate about as a church, that we ought to be passionate about as people. There's a quote from John Piper that I took that I really like. He says, When you live in the blazing brightness of the light of God's holiness, everything will be different. When you feel the weight of the rock of God's holiness like ballast in your boat, you will navigate storms of these troubled times. And you will become a refuge for millions who are perishing. I don't know about you. If any of you out there want to serve the Lord, want to... brought us his son, right? He's, been, he's, he's brought us Jesus Christ and given us a way to him through Christ. We can now walk every day in the light of that holy God and, and in the power of that holy God and in the love of that holy God. That that holiness can just be something that we cling to no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter what storm we're in, no matter what difficulty is brought our way, we cling to the holiness of God and say, that is my God. What do I have to fear? What do I have to worry about? So how do we, how do we get there? I guess would be a key question. What, in what ways can, can this holiness of God be something we gain more understanding of? How do, we, how do we get there? How do we get to where we're really understanding God's holiness better and it's, and it's seeking into our life and it's seeping out of our 
of our ministry? Well, I think, obviously, uh, one answer would be getting in the Word. Obviously, understanding and, and, and reading passages like Isaiah 6, but there's tons other that speak to God's holiness, that speak to His majesty, that go into in great detail all the ways in which God is so much not like us and so worthy of our praise. And we spend time getting to know that God in our Word. Holiness, His holiness, His renown is going to become important to us. It's going to be something we, we want to know more of. I guess the second thing I would want to challenge you with or a way that, that, that we could gain more understanding is through the discipline of silence and solitude. The other night I just went out after dropping one of the junior high guys off. Um, I took him home and, and I just went for a little bit out and just sat in this dark, kind of he has this park by his house and it was totally dark, really quiet. And I just sat out there for a while. And, you know, I didn't have my Bible with me. I mean, I had his word hidden in my heart, you know, although Eric and Matt would say not very well. But I had, you know, I, had, I essentially didn't have even my scriptures in front of me, but, but I had the presence of the Lord. I had that holy God before me. And I just had an audience with him. And I'll tell you what, folks, I, I don't know, you know, our world isn't built to, to, to really get towards silence these days. You know, it's not something we really have very often. Even in our supermarkets or, or in our elevators, we're cranking music, right? We're constantly trying to drown out silence. But I, I believe silence is one of the key things that we need in our lives if we really want to get to where we appreciate God and where we really get to, to start to dwell on Him and just thank on our God. Thank on His holiness and let that just, chew, you know, just meditate within our minds. Do you ever have moments of silence? Is that even something that you're capable of carving into your schedule? I would, I guess, just challenge you. If, if this idea this morning of, of the importance of God's holiness is worth something to you, I think then the, the, the logical step is you will carve out time to just be quiet before your God, to just be with Him in silence and solitude and, and to just dwell on his holiness. Oh, that we would become a people who, who truly live as undone, as people who, who recognize our own bro brokenness, our own unmaskedness, but also recognize the holiness of our God and, and live in that light. Let me pray. Father, I just ask that you would do that for us. Lord, that you would give us an ability to, 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 to somehow get a hold of this concept of your holiness, Lord. Obviously, it's something we're not going to be able to get ourselves fully around. Um, it's not something we can fully grasp, but it's something that I believe changes us when we grasp it even in part or even a little bit at a time. And so, God, I just pray that you would cause us to be people who hunger and, and are passionate for your holiness, that, that it's something we look for, and it's something we, we seek to, to gain um, audience of in our lives. Lord, we're not going to get necessarily the vision that Isaiah got, but even so, Lord, you can still show us new things about us, about you, every day. And so I just pray that you would do that. Lord, like Isaiah, that we would become undone. Um, as a result of seeing you, and that as a result of that, we would be effective. And so that when you call us, we would stand up and say, Lord, here am I. Send me. Send me, Lord. Yeah, I want to serve you today. Father, we love you so much. We praise you for being a God who is holy, holy, holy.
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that's it, folks. Thank you all. You're dismissed. Have a great day in the Lord.